Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Bijou Abiona, the Director of Consumer Insights at L'Oreal Lux in New York. Bijou is a proven innovator with over 10 years of driving growth in customer-centric businesses through creative strategies and compelling storytelling. Developing omni-channel businesses for brands like Dior, Chanel, Bobby Brown, Ralph Lauren, and Diane von Wurstenberg, her collective experience across multiple retail categories produced a differentiation strategy that delivered over $220 million in sales for a major department store in the US. In her current role, she partners with business leaders within L'Oreal's Lux division to convert data-driven insights into actionable customer acquisition and retention strategies. Bijou, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's great to see you. I mean, the time difference is a slightly odd thing. You're in the morning, we're in the afternoon. I know. <laughs> Today, we, we are talking about luxury uh, predominantly. But firstly, just tell us a little bit about, about you. Yeah, so thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show with you. I've been really into fashion and all things luxury and retail for a very long time. I started my career uh, at Lord & Taylor, which unfortunately is no more, but I started back in 2007. I often tell this story that I wasn't meant to be in retail. I went to undergrad and grad for an economics degree. I thought I would be an economist. Um, but it's so funny how much of retail and understanding consumer behavior can be tied back to you know economics, right? Um, and so I've had the really opportunity to work with some of my own favorite brands, like you mentioned, uh, within cosmetics, Chanel, Dior, YSL, Armani, and then within apparel, some of the classic brands like Ralph Lauren, DVF, Theory. Uh, so I've really enjoyed my role. I think over the past two years, I've made a shift into more strategic oversight and strategic projects, which is has me a little bit away from products. But uh, overall, my passion still remains about giving the consumer what she needs. And uh, it's always a joy to go to a job that you enjoy every single day. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that doesn't happen to everybody. <laughs> it doesn't. I, I realize that I am very fortunate to be in an industry that I actually enjoy being in. So I'm very thankful for that. We are in the week of Thanksgiving. So I will say I am thankful for that one. But, and what, what better a time to say it? <laughs> yeah. um, so I mean, it's interesting. So you've got, you've got this experience of both sides of the business. Um, the fashion, you know, the fashion business from, the, you know, they're dealing with actual product to dealing with stats to data. Just tell us a little bit about um, how you think shopping has changed over the past um, five years, for example. Oh, yeah. Five years is actually a pretty big time frame, Sean. I think we can say over the past five months, yeah. right? Because we've seen the complete acceleration of e-commerce within retail, within even within luxury. We're talking about a sector that had remained very high touch, very in-person for so long. And then all of a sudden we all went indoors. People still wanted these goods, but the only way to get them was online. And so we've seen incredible growth um, in digital. I would say up over almost in some businesses, 160, 170, 300% uh, over the past five months. So I think the question remains when the world opens up, when there's a vaccine from the virus, will we still need as many stores as we had going into lockdown? And I believe the answer is no. Um, I think we're going to see a big shift into more customer service, elevated customer service. And I'm speaking within luxury here, right? Not within every sector of apparel. 
Um, I think we'll see a big shift into elevated customer service, white glove services like order online, uh, have it delivered to you on the same day. My old company, Saks, does a really great job with this. So um, we've seen a huge shift. And I think in the luxury sector, it'll become more about taking that service and delivering it in person versus, versus uh, having the customer come to you. And that is significant, isn't it? Because over the past, um, you know, this is the five-year period. Over the past five years, these uh, the luxury brands have been trying so hard to get us into their stores to experience that kind of physical environment, um, that physical shopping environment. So that's significant. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that there will still be a need for the stores when we talk about luxury, right? Because stopping in the duty-free stores on your way, you know, to London or to China will still be a big part of the travel experience. Uh, but I, I certainly think that as people stay within their own four walls of their own countries, we might see the shift of it. And it might be short term, but I certainly do think that luxury will get, uh, will get a bit of a shift. I don't know that it will be as big as other sectors, but I, I certainly do think that we're going to see a shift there. That's interesting is that you talk about duty free. I mean, at the moment in the in the UK, there's um, an issue because the government is looking to remove duty free shopping. From, I heard this in airports. January. That's yeah. right. Um, and That's a problem. in fact, that is a problem. One of the um, other people I'm interviewing, Helen Brocklebank, who's the CEO of Walpole, which is the big luxury brand um, network. I mean, they are fighting to keep that open because it's such important business to all luxury brands. Absolutely. I know for myself as a consumer, I typically wait until I'm at Heathrow to buy whatever I want to buy. Uh, I, I mean, I might go into the store on High Street or wherever, but I know that when I get to the airport, that's when I'm transacting. So I, I think it's a big miss for the economy there. But hey, I, I don't understand a lot of things <laughs> currently. So um, but I do think travel retail will continue to be a big touch point for luxury. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So I mean, interesting to hear that, you know, lots of the stores are offering these, I suppose, concierge services, in effect, you know, pick something up, drop it off, try it on, don't want it, then somebody comes back and picks it up. So this is an emerging kind of um, um, kind of industry for people who love to shop but ne can't necessarily shop for themselves. No, definitely. <laughs> I, I I was really um, impressed when I saw Saks make the pivot during the um, lockdown. They started initially with the Hamptons because obviously that's where most of their customer base is, and then they pivoted to the city. And what you find is, you know, people feel like they're still getting the luxe experience, which is, you know, someone's paying attention to me, right? Because if you think about it, when you go in these stores, it's about who is paying attention to me? Do I have their undivided attention? And do they treat me like I'm the only one in this shop right now getting ready to buy this product, right? So having the same person come to your home, uh, being able to text with the associate, having them pull together things for you in the store, giving you an appointment. Another thing that we're seeing is shop by appointment, right? Because Stores don't want to be so crowded. So you can, you know, email your favorite associate and say, hey, I'm looking for this. You set up an appointment, you come in. It is the ultimate luxury experience, the way people are shopping today. Yeah, very, very different. And um, yeah, like you say, it's kind of an ultimate experience because all the attention is on you with no distraction. Which if we can't define that as luxury, I'm not sure what else is the definition. <laughs> this series of... Um, 
of the podcast, that you know, the first series is featuring visionary women. How would you describe a visionary woman? Oh, that's a that's a big one. I think when you think of vision, it's just the ability to see things not as they are, but as they can be, right? And so, you know, women or men, I would say women probably have a bit more of this than them. I'm just joking. Uh, you know, we have the ability to sort of walk into a space and imagine as it can be and, and make it that either over time or in the moment. Um, and I think in the in terms of just luxury and retail, uh, visionary women are people who really have an eye on the future um, and are constantly making strides to get us there um, in the now. So I, I'm not sure if that fully answers your question, but I think vision is really about seeing things as they can be and working towards that. I use the term a lot, explore and exploit. Uh, I got that from one of my professors in business school. I think vision is about deciding to put more of your budget or a good portion of your budget into exploring what can be while exploiting your current uh, capabilities, but understanding that things will eventually change. Mm. Yeah, and things do, as we've just discussed. Five months. I asked, I started with a question about five years. You reduced it to five months, and that <laughs> five months is is amazing in terms of in terms of change yeah so thinking about vision thinking about kind of the future what is the most exciting thing then about your work and what you do at um, l'oreal oh my gosh i think the most exciting thing which it's exciting but also very nerve-wracking is how quickly things are changing right and so being at the forefront of being able to see it before people in the business might even perceive it is very exciting because you're able to take that insight and take it to the business and help them form different strategies on how they move things along. Um, and so it's almost like just being at the at the edge of everything, right? And so, um, like I mentioned, the consumer behavior today and what it was even just in January has completely changed. The channels that they're coming to us from are changing. Um, and so we don't have the luxury anymore of planning things. Yes, we can plan things a year out, but I think being nimble and being agile is key. And I think one of the things I love about my job, I'm only about a month and a half into it at this moment, is being able to be a part of that conversation, how we should change. Um, because the consumer is king, right? We are here to service the consumer. And I think any retailer that doesn't think from that standpoint uh, will miss out now and in the future. Yeah, and I think... Um, and that, that it's interesting because that is now applying to all sectors. It's not only at yeah. the kind of the very top end. It's, you know, any product that's out there for sale, you know, the kind of the strategy is changing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, we are talking about luxury and you've touched on um, some really interesting points about kind of the shopping experience and um, kind of how we're engaging with um, with um, with luxury brands and luxury stores. What is the most defining factor of um, kind of that luxury experience today, aside from kind of um, having that um, concierge service or that personal touch? I honestly think that the most defining factor is accessibility, right? And so and by that, I mean, once upon a time, you could only get certain things if you were visiting that country or if you were visiting that store, right? And now with e-commerce, anyone can get it. I can even speak of um, from a service standpoint, right? You would walk in a store and depending on, let's be very blunt here, the color of your skin, uh, your socioeconomic status, the level of service that you would get would not be equal, um, which isn't fortunate, but it's the reality of luxury. And I think what's happening right now is that luxury is by definition becoming more inclusive. 
I, I'm starting to think of luxury instead of it being exclusive, especially with the rise of social media, the rise of e-commerce, luxury has become democratic. And so I think the defining factor for luxury will be how do they maintain, how do these brands maintain brand DNA and that sense of um, exclusivity and aspiration, even in the midst of the democratization of luxury. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's become so mass and become so democratized. How do you maintain that niche of accessibility and still make your brand uh, aspirational and not too common for lack of a better word? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because then you think about, you know, the 90s, the early 90s in Burberry um, and the type of customer that was buying the the Burberry product and then they kind of went, oh, no, that's not who we want buying our product and, and shifted everything. Right. It's I suppose it's how you continually address those kind of issues, which they they the brand issues, they're not the consumer issues. The consumer doesn't really care, do they? You know? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think any brand that's thinking along the lines of, well, this is not the kind of person I want wearing my brand just doesn't want to increase market share, right? <laughs> I think that's just the reality of it. I think you can speak to your target consumer in your marketing and in your advertising, uh, but in terms of accessibility, you, you kind of don't want to do that. Otherwise, you pigeonhole yourself in a world that's becoming very increasingly um, shared. Once upon a time, you didn't even know you had to wait for your Vogue to come in the mail or you had to wait to be on an airplane to see what people were wearing or what people were doing or on the train. Now you just pick up your phone and you swipe and you see all the influencers. You know, if you want something to sell out quickly, you know, put it on. I don't know. I always use the Kardashian girls. but I don't know that they're relevant anymore. But if you want to see something sell out quickly, put it on the really big influencers and it just moves constantly so luxury has by definition changed with the rise of social media mm. and uh, it's interesting you say that because um some uh, um, one of the other interviewees um Catherine Scorey who's the chief operating officer from All Saints I mean she was saying that they those influences are having less and less impact as we move forward you know I, I was of the same school of thought and I think that some categories, yes. So now that I'm in beauty, I think the influencer market still remains, right? Because beauty is all about like, see it on me, right? Like this is how you use it. This is the skin impact, you know, like before and after images. So I think in beauty, the influencer economy continues to be strong. Um, it, it, it is one of those things where the ROI is reducing, right? Because there are so many influencers right now. And then I think in apparel, it changes a bit. Uh, but that being said, I, I think with the current landscape, if you asked me in January, I would say, yes, the influencer economy was shrinking. But in the current landscape, I think they still remain just as important. Um, I don't know how long term that will be, but I think today we're not necessarily seeing that shrink happen just yet. Hmm. And I think uh, I suppose part of that is because, you know, this is this five month window that we're talking about. So much has happened. So people are not, you know, they're not having as many photo shoots, in fact, anymore. Um, but they might be, you know, doing everything at home and having all the products sent to them, setting up, you know, like I am with lights and microphones and you know cameras and things just to do that shot. And that's that's the new shoot, isn't it? Absolutely. At home. Yeah, at home. <laughs> um, your job is kind of very much about understanding data. Just explain a little bit about 
kind of how you use data and what it means within kind of your business, you know, because people just, you know, we hear about this thing of data and big data and what does it mean and what does it do? I mean, I think one of the biggest um, things to think about is you have brands that lead with product. I mean, you're always leading with product, right? Uh, meaning, you know, is this product the right product for my market? Is this product on brand? Is this product innovative when you're thinking of beauty? Um, is this product going to meet the consumer's need? But one of the things that brands miss a lot is, you know, we often hear this consumer-centric marketing or consumer-centric behaviors but brands don't use their data enough to really understand what the consumer is doing. And by that, I mean, you know, they kind of go face value, right? So I sell this in this market, I sell this in that market, but not digging deeper to understand the whys behind the consumer behavior in that market has them reacting the same way all the time. And that's when they have the opportunity to miss things. So that's a long way of saying that the way we use data and the way we parse through data and why the shift to digital actually helps almost every single brand is because when you're shopping online, we can see your clicking preferences, believe it or not, right? Because there are all these cookies that can track the way you're clicking through things. Um, we can, we know your address, we know your cell phone number, we know your email address. We're able to collect a lot more information about the consumer now that things are shifting online than when it was in the store. Because think about it, in the store, you come in, you swipe your credit card, you walk out, I don't know where you live and I don't know anything else about you. So I think the data landscape now is so much wider and so much richer um, that brands have no choice but to really start digging into that data so that they get sharper and wiser about um, their consumers' needs today. Mm. And that leads to, in effect, an emergent kind of um, tech revolution, doesn't it? Because yeah. all the emerging um technology that will become um, much more prevalent in the way it's used whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality um, the whole shopping experience is going to change based on the data that you are um, sifting through isn't it yeah and the quicker you can sift through the data so just so you know i i i wasn't really even sure about the enormity of this sector i have a mentor um from my old job, Steve Gold, who, who kind of threw me into this. And I initially was just so confused, but the reality is this is the way of the future. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, VR, AR, um, AI, artificial intelligence, predictive analysis, like they're just all these things that technology is gonna be able to do even within the next you know, six to nine to 18 months that we weren't seeing just a year ago. So the more information we can collect, the smarter technology gets, and the more we can kind of meet the consumer's need quicker versus where we were just, you know, to your initial time frame five years ago. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose that is, I mean, it's it's huge because, you know, if we're moving from a kind of that physical store to kind of this digital environment, which is all data driven and the customer experience then becomes even more personalized based on kind of track and trace of where they've been, what they've done, what they've bought. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal uh, kind of, well, change, but also it's getting the consumer or the customer used to that use of their information, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I find that because I, I forayed a little bit into consumer privacy before switching completely into this whole like data space. And 
a lot of the research was showing that if a customer has an understanding of what you're using their data for, like if you are transparent about it, they, they're not as resistant to it, right? Especially if that means that they get a more personalized experience with you or your brand. Um, I think where we run into some issues is when brands start selling, you know, people's private information to other companies, using it to monetize, you know, for monetization purposes. I think that's where we run into issues. Uh, but to your point, being able to serve up, you know, I come on the website and I see things that are recommended for me that fit my exact, you know, behavior patterns that fit my exact needs, then my ability to transact with that brand increases automatically, right? Because I came in to buy a white shirt and you've just shown me a pair of black pants that you think I might like with that white shirt. And I didn't need a black pair of black pants before coming on your site, but now I can't buy the white shirt without the black pants. And there you go. You just made another hundred dollars off of me, right? So I, it's a win-win. Uh, it's such a huge gener uh, revenue generator. And so, yeah, I think there's just a lot to be to be unearthed or un, there's a lot to be um, seen here in terms of this sector of recommendation channels and artificial intelligence. I mean, the, what then do you see, I mean, you know, within the beauty industry? I mean, I know that when we spoke the other day, we were talking about lipstick and kind of in times of war, lipstick sales go up and, um, you know, there are kind of trends in times of difficulty. This is unprecedented. So what are the kind of con shifts in consumer behavior that you are seeing? Well, I mean, we talked about the lipstick economy, right? Which in 2007, mm. 2008, during the initial um, recession, I think that's the only recession that I've been alive for was the 07, 08 <laughs> one, um, was, you know, we saw big shifts into beauty, into makeup. Um, this time around, we're seeing huge shifts into skincare, right? Because people aren't going out as much. They don't need the full face glam, but they're more into having, you know, that glow during their nighttime routine. So we're seeing a huge spike in skincare. Um, and so I think it's, it's not necessarily the lipstick effect, but now it's sort of just the skincare effect. Um, and then in terms of just lipstick, just as a specific category, we're all wearing masks. No one's looking at your lips as much as they used to before. So we've seen a huge shift into eye makeup categories like mascara, uh, the brow. Um, so I think at the end of the day, that shift is very, very temporary. Like we'll see, I think we're already starting to see pickups in lipstick sales as we go into holiday. Uh, so that's from a beauty perspective, the biggest focus right now is skincare. And I see that continuing as people get more cautious about what it is that they use on their skin going forward. How does that um, work? Because you're not, we're not going into the stores. So, and there's, I'm assuming there's a, a no returns policy for goods like that. But where's the balance between sending the goods out, somebody then looking at that product, thinking, uh, in actual fact, it's not quite right to me. There's no sample or tester um, that they can use. I mean, I just thought. You know, is that kind of something having an impact? Yeah, like that's actually a really good one because once upon a time you could test things and now, you know, stores are moving away from it. I think you will see an increase in return rate. And, you know, that's just something that brands will have to plan for. So if your return rate was, I'm making up a number, 15% in beauty, maybe increase that another 10 points to 25% uh, because you understand that people are buying things now without trying it and the likelihood of return is higher. There are financial implications from just the way things are set up today. It will not always be like that. I think the big caution going into 2021 for a lot of brands is how do you plan your business? 
you can't plan it to mirror 2020. Um, you also can't necessarily plan it to mirror 2019. So I think everyone is in this like learning phase and we're just gonna have to take more risk in terms of what our expectations are on how the customer will behave and sort of what the norms and the trends will be going into the new year. Hmm. So, I mean, so again, we've been forced into a situation, haven't we? Yeah. So what, are, I mean, what do you think the kind of the, um, the obvious um, benefits of this kind of seismic shift in the way we, um, well, the way we shop, but also the way the, the brand service us? Oh my gosh, I think there that's a great question, Sean. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, do we really need four cycles of clothing, right? Like I remember when I was a buyer, I go to spring market, fall market, summer market, resort market. Do we really need that many drops every single year? I think one of the benefits will be real conversations around waste and sustainability. Um, and I'm not a sustainability expert. I can't pretend that it's something that I'm super passionate about, but I am very passionate about waste right in general um so i think we'll see a reduction in number of garments produced or number of items produced that's the number one benefit because it does impact the planet i think the second benefit from a consumer standpoint is need i think everyone has been forced this year to think about what they really need versus what they want um and i that's a benefit from the consumer standpoint right keeping more money in your pocket in the event of emergency from a brand standpoint it means that you know what the consumer is spending with us is, is shrinking. But I do think that those changes need to happen for us to be a more balanced society or um, a balanced set of people. I think we just gotten in the routine of things for so long that this has forced us to really question our the why behind our motives and the why behind our shopping behaviors. So um, I want to kind of um, take a little, a, a slightly different route now, if, um, if I may, I want to talk it's more about kind of cultural and social shifts yeah so we've seen the you know a considerable impact of the black lives matter um kind of events in in the us how's that impacted on you and and your work and your working in and living environment gosh 2020 was a very interesting year i think we were all dealing with just being indoors and then um and then everything shifted in the summer of 2020. And I think the impact of that has been a lot of soul searching. I would say personally for me, as I watch brands speak up and, and, and as I heard people talk about their personal experiences of discrimination, it broke my heart as a woman of color in retail because for so long, I thought that my experiences were unique to me, right? So for every moment that someone told me I wasn't worth it or I wasn't good enough, Subconsciously, I always internalized that, but it felt like everyone of every woman of color, every person of color in retail across industries got a microphone at some point to say, "This isn't unique to you. This is also happening to me." And it became there became a, a shared sense of just pain that we were all experiencing at the same time. So, to answer your question, for me personally, it's been important to align myself with people who, um, you heard the term allies a lot, right? With allies, people who understand that my worth has nothing to do with the color of my skin and everything to do with my work, right? As an individual, it's been important for me to connect with other people of color so that I never get into this place of isolation to think that my experiences are unique. 
And it's also kind of challenged me as a growing leader, as a future leader, to really think about my own authentic um, behavior patterns and my own views on life to ensure that as I move on in my career, I'm constantly reaching back to ensure that I'm not the only one in the room. I think my biggest goal in life right now, corporately, is to ensure that I'm never the only, and by only meaning the only woman or the only Black woman in a room, because we have to keep reaching back to bring people along with us. It's interesting because um, yesterday I had a conversation with um, a colleague at work, and he said exactly the same thing. He's from Ghana. Um, and he said, you know, he walks into a room looking for somebody like him. And I, and I suppose it's very difficult to relate to that situation because, and I, I'd said to him, well, you know, I'm Jewish and I feel sometimes, you know, when I go out, you know, what am I going to, what kind of, what response am I going to get? And he said, but people can't see you Jewish. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what I always tell people. I'm like, the second I step in, <laughs> there's no denying that I am black and I am a woman. And those two things automatically set me up, depending on the room, for, um, for either for success, very rarely, but me having to work twice as hard because of those two factors. I'm not complaining. I think, you know, everyone's been talking a lot in the U.S. about, you know, Black women being the backbone of America with the win of Kamala Harris. And it's a sense of pride, right? We've been through enough. And there's a level of resilience that we have in our character that has come from just having to constantly swim upstream especially corporately. Um, and I think, you know, this is the strength of our character. We can't, to say that we are who we are outside of the experiences that we have had is not a thing, right? So they go hand in hand. I mean, I'd rather not have to constantly swim upstream, right? But it is the reality that that has created a sense of fortitude in, in my character. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and, you know, things have to change, don't they? They do. Um, and it's quite amazing that it's taking so long to change. And Sean, the reality is, I have to be very honest to say that a lot of what you are seeing as change, like everyone now has like a chief diversity officer, which we can talk about that another time. It's still very, very surface because a lot of the problems that we have today is about people's belief systems and belief systems don't change overnight. Um, and so, uh, you know, that for, is what worries me. And, uh, you know, another um, one of our interviewees, um, Effie Kanua, who's the communication and brand director at um, Hearst Magazines in the UK, um, we were talking about um, similar things. And we were talking about kind of creativity and being in creative environments in which we all are. Um, and we were talking about diversity because, you know, how can you be creative without diversity? Because that is kind of um, instinctive in... Diversity breeds creativity, right? It's about difference in thought, right? Thinking about things and looking at things from different perspectives and different points of view is the definition of creativity. Mm. Yeah, uh, no, ab absolutely. And, you know, that's, you know, that's exactly the same as, you know, that's exactly the same thing we were talking about, that you can't be creative without having input from many different people to you know create that excitement about difference yeah 100 <laughs> percent. i wanted to ask you a little bit about um kind of the technology you use uh so within your work and personally i mean are you on a big tech fan i don't 
I'm laughing because I'm like, no. <laughs> um, I, learning to code has been the bane of my existence in 2020. I think the big thing for me is being able to lead a group of people who are really good at that stuff, right? So I'm not in the weeds. I'm not writing SQL codes. I'm not the one creating the predictive analysis um, in the data warehouses, et cetera. I'm just there to kind of create the strategic vision and have people who are real experts in this do it. Uh, I think from a technology standpoint, uh, one of the exciting things that I'm, I'm learning about, or I was learning about, and I still find fascinating is this move to the cloud, not needing actual data warehouses. I won't bore your listeners with the technicalities of all of this, but it's to say that uh, what has been very interesting for me from a learning experience is to see how little I need to actually know about the actual technology and how much of it, how much of my role specifically comes from just knowing what the levers are to drive the business. Yeah. So, I mean, when you crunch all the data, what do your, um, what kind of does your team do with that data? Do, does it kind of, uh, is it used to identify um, where you're going to position a, um, a product that's currently kind of doing well? Or do you identify a different, a completely different channel to try and tap into something else because of what you've seen? It's all those things. It really is all those things. It's like, you know, from a media perspective, where are we seeing the biggest um, acquisition of customers? Where are we seeing the biggest lifetime value of those customers? You know, depending on the uh, media that we bring the customer in from, does that customer have the propensity to come back and repeat purchase with us again? So there are all these different levers. It, there's no one single lever, um, but it can be about product positioning. It could be about media investments. Uh, it can be about, um, promotions, right? Promo strategies, et cetera, et cetera. It's really, my role is really all about how do we get the right customer in the door um, and how do we keep them in the door and how do we keep them transacting with us over and over again? I mean, I was just thinking of, um, there was a film and I can't remember who was in it, but I don't know if it was Melissa McCarthy where she played the boss of a, like a QVC type home shopping channel. Okay. Um, um, so th this kind of reminds me, it's like, not quite, but slightly reminds me of that, that there's somebody sitting in the background and they're watching the sales channels and they say, no, sell that, sell that, keep selling, keep selling. Numbers are going yeah. up, numbers are going up. It, yeah. it reminds me of a much more advanced, you know, it's a system where you, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it's, it's, it's really fascinating and I'm still learning. I'm not an expert, um, but I think one of the things that kind of, back to your point around how things are changing, I would say from a personal perspective is to be agile and to be nimble. And so I remember talking to, you know, one of the head honchos here at L'Oreal and she was saying, you know, we have to grow your team and, and this is really important. And I said to her, I was like, well, this isn't really my area of expertise. And she goes, well, it is now. <laughs> and that was such a moment for me because you realize that now isn't the time to kind of have a niche area of influence uh, from a career standpoint. I used to always beat myself up about being a generalist, always saying I was a jack of all trades, a master of none. But I think that that has come to serve me well in this uh, economy, in this, in this world we're in, where being agile and being nimble and being able to move around quickly uh, is more of a benefit than it is a hindrance to your growth in your career. That's Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, interesting that you... Um... <laughs> You know, you you kind of speaking to somebody, and they kind of throwing you into kind of the real world of where you're actually working and what you're doing. 
yeah. And, and when she said that, I was like, well, yeah, she's right. It is now. Um, so how do I own it and how do I drive it and how do I get us the results that we need? I was just wondering if, you know, kind of what your thoughts are about kind of being sustainable, because again, this, you know, there's the, the, the thing about us shopping at home and not, you know, driving so much or not going in cabs or whatever it is to stores and things. Um, you know, there's a reduction in carbon footprint, for example. But then on the other hand, there's an, uh, an increase in, I don't know, packaging and delivery. Yeah. I was just wondering what your thoughts were about that. It's funny you bring that up. I honestly, we have uh, from from business school, I have a friend, Anissa, who is like the head of sustainability at Tiffany and Company. And she does phenomenal work in this space. And I always read what she's working on and kind of where her mind is at. But I think for me, I'm really, I don't pay enough attention in this space. But to your point, the other day I got a package for something and it was one little thing, but it had all these bubble wraps and things on it. And it kind of annoyed me. I'm like, well, why do we need all the wraps on this? Um, because at the end of the day, this is going to go in the garbage and it's going to go in some landfill. So I, I honestly couldn't necessarily answer here specifically, but I do think the onus is on the brands to think about their packaging, to think about you know their their impact on carbon footprints, et cetera. Um, it's going to be at a brand level and also just at a statewide or even national level for there to be mandates and quotas that are set so that you know we're not moving from one one sector of waste to another. Yeah, because I I I I wonder what that um, I wonder what that kind of says to the consumer. You know, how do they feel about all this stuff that they're getting? Um, you know, if you shop from one company, you know, instead of sending everything in one delivery, they'll send four different drivers. Yeah. Um, you know, if you ordered four things, it's kind of I wonder what the customer thinks about that. If it has any impact on kind of their the way they decide to shop or not. I mean, I think at the end of the day, everyone will do what is best for them, right? Like you want to hope that people are thinking about the greater good. But listen, if I need something from Amazon today and I need something tomorrow, I'm not going to wait to make that order because the reality is, to your point, it's not coming in two different, you know, it's coming in two different packages, whether or not I place it all at once or I place it, you know, separately. So I, I do think that it fall, the responsibility ultimately lies on the business to think about how they are um, delivering items to the customer going forward. Because yeah. I suppose, I, you know, just thinking about it, you'd think, well, shouldn't they eventually be packaging, oh, I don't know, if it's a, a lipstick or a bottle of shampoo, shouldn't that be the deliverable package so they're not having to put it in another box? It just becomes part of that whole thing and then you open it and you've got your little product inside rather than having the box, the bubble wrap, and then the product in a box and then the product... Um, in the yeah. box of the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's certainly that. Those are all things that I think brands have to really think through, um, even from a cost saving standpoint. Right. Because shipping, I mean, logistics and shipping is the next frontier of innovation here, because think about it. The more people are shopping online, the more we're going to need more delivery drivers, um, more <laughs> delivery routes, et cetera. So I think the next big area to watch is entrance into shipping, delivery, and logistics. Yeah, and I think, well, I suppose with kind of beauty products, drones are really easy because they can take little things to wherever they need to be taken. Right. Are people actually using drones to deliver things at the moment? I don't know. Well, I know that... I haven't really looked into that yet. Yeah, I think Amazon have trialed it. Um, and it's. I think from what I... Was it Amazon or Google? Somebody did trial it and it looked like it was kind of successful and it was going to be, you know, 
that was going to be something that was going to be kind of implemented. Yeah, I think from a beauty standpoint, at least I can speak for my company. I'm pretty new, but they are constantly thinking about um, reducing carbon footprint and emission, like even down to their packaging. So I'm pretty confident that when it comes to this idea of shipping and reducing waste, it's already top of mind for for the people that um, focus on that area of the business. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, again, you know, this is a, in effect, a forced innovation. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't profess to be an expert in delivery and logistics. Um, it's kind of what, it, you know, it's kind of what you see and you think, oh, wow, okay, they're going to do that next. Um, uh, and then, you know, you, then the thing that kind of comes into my mind, oh, you know, they're encouraging us to buy even more stuff because it's going to be easier now for them to deliver. They'll just drop it on the balcony or kind of fly through the window. It's amazing. So, I mean, thinking about shopping and delivery, I was just wondering, do you think people are buying much more stuff now um, than they were buying six or six months ago, seven months ago? Or do you think they're buying less? I mean, I think this is a question that we have to, I think it's a hard one to answer in this moment. And here's why. People could categorically be buying less because of reduction in household income, Right. A lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people have gone from two income earner households to one income earner household. So the contraction in how they're spending might not be directly correlated to sort of behavior pattern. It's almost just they've been forced into it. Um, I think if we separate out and segment the different groups of people, you will see that people who did not have reductions in income are probably shopping more, right? Because you need that thing because it's, it's so easy. Like I, like one click on Amazon is the death of me. Sometimes I get things in the mail. I'm like, I don't remember ordering that. So I think we are all just kind of clicking away, right? It is much easier to shop online. Um, but I think from a consumption standpoint, we have to kind of tie that in. I think the real answer to this will come when things normalize from an economic standpoint in the next year or two to see if people are buying more because it's easier to just kind of get it online. Yeah, I, I, that, that's kind of an interesting point, isn't it? Is it easier to just shop because you click? Um, no, it's and, definitely easier to do that. Yeah. I think the only de- the deterrent there is always about return, right? Because when you're when you're buying it online, you don't know what it fits like. We're talking apparel here or when you're buying something online and it's the beauty product, you don't know what it's going to feel like on your skin. So those things kind of can be annoying because you have to go back and return the items. Uh, but that being said, I think it's just ease of transacting. Yeah. Uh, well, here, they the post office, in fact, has just introduced a new system, which is a drop your parcel off. So you can go to the post box and just drop the parcel and they'll send it back for you. Oh, yeah. We have that here. That's been, I learned yeah. of that like the, the easy way. And once I figured that part out, it made shopping even easier. Yeah. And, you know, we have a corner shop. And if you buy something, it's it's the same there, I'm sure. You know, you buy something, it doesn't fit you, just you know, kind of went on your way to wherever you're going. If you're allowed out, you just take it to the shop and they do everything. You know, it's so different, isn't it? You know, the whole kind of um, buying, shopping, um, everything has changed so much that, um, you know, in some ways it's so much easier. Um, and then in other ways, it's, it's slightly disappointing because you can't actually go anywhere to buy anything. Exactly. <laughs> um, so just to kind of, um, I suppose, wrap up, because we've been chatting, it's been great to to chat to you. Um, I was just wondering, you know, we were talking about a bit about sustainability. I was just interested in kind of your thoughts about wastefulness, 
you know, do you think people are kind of engaging in a lot of wasteful kind of purchasing? And if you do, how do we kind of change that? Oh, no, I think I addressed that a bit. I, I think that the current climate has reduced waste, right, in terms of thinking about your purchase before making it because there aren't that many places to go. Um, and because there is just this realization that you don't need as many things as you've acquired in the past. So um, I think we're seeing an increase in the secondhand economy, right? People being more mindful of waste and going to buy things that have already been worn before. Um, so, and I, I definitely think the younger generation is a bit more conscious of this than say my millennial generation or the generation before me. Uh, and I certainly see this as something that will continue to be at the forefront of the consumer's mind going forward. And to, uh, I suppose, to finish then, I was going to ask you what your luxury is. <laughs> my luxury is travel. Ah. Uh, that is my luxury. It, it, there is just something about travel that expands your worldview. I, I mean, personally speaking, traveling, watching the way people are dressed around the world, watching the way people respond to social norms and pop culture, et cetera. It, it's one of my favorite things is being, you know, on High Street in London and just watching the different groups of people and the different ages of people um, and kind of how they represent themselves and how they're dressed uh, daily. So, so that's kind of... Um multifaceted then so it's not only travel yeah. it's traveling people watching <laughs> oh it's people it's 100 like i remember the first day i came out and i was able to kind of walk out and and be in the city again i just kind of stared at people <laughs> um because it goes back to my fascination with consumer behavior why is it that people do what they do and why is it that people choose the things that they choose um so yes it is travel and people watching and travel expands my set of people to watch uh, so it is it is combined you were you born in london i was born in london right yes okay so but did you spend lots of time here or do you spend lots of time i spend lots of time in london now i did not spend lots of time in london growing up um but i i it has increasingly become my favorite place in the world and so i remember between 2015 and 2018 i had been to london over a dozen times uh, because I just really enjoyed it there and because I had worked there at the same time. Okay. Uh, so then this is definitely the last uh, <laughs> the last question. How do you reconcile kind of luxury in London and luxury in New York? Well, I have a term for, I have a term for London um, when it comes to, because I've always wanted to move back there. I always say that London is New York's cooler older brother. And that's from the standpoint of just like the society in general and the way people dress. Um, I think there's just something really elegant about London. And I don't know if it has to do more with just the number of, um, you know, people from the Middle East that come through London, like Middle East and, and Asia. I think that has a big influence on luxury in London. Um, I just think of Harrods and I, I, it really is quintessentially for me, the epitome of luxury. Um, I think it also helps that London has has the queen and the royal family making it even more luxurious versus us we just have a president um, but in all seriousness I, I do think that uh I think they're both different in their own right but if I had to say when I think of luxury I certainly think more of London than I do of New York for sure
Bijou, this has been fantastic. It's been great chatting to you. And I'd like to say thank you very much. Of course. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to staying in touch and hearing more from other women that you get to chat with. Brilliant. Thank you. That was Bijou Abiola, Director of Consumer Insight and Strategy at L'Oreal Lux in New York. Thank you to our partners, Intellect Books, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Podcast.